Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 13. It's interesting to me that almost at the beginning and at the end of the great literary tradition in the Western world that analyzes this process, you have two images that have to do with this, generally. And the first is in Dante's Inferno. Dante meets Paolo and Francesca, who are in hell for all eternity for an adulterous affair. Uh, uh, Francesca having been married to Paolo's brother. And he asks Francesca to explain how this happened. And she says, well, we were reading a book, you see. And this is quite extraordinary because you, we, we don't like to think of it that way because we don't like to notice the mediation. We like to think that we just, that's just how we are. So we come out of these movies, or kids, you know, kids come out of movies and the movies have had a certain distinguishing character, you know, and the kids come out and start behaving like this character. Well, anyway, we don't like to notice the mediation because it spoils it. You see, you don't, we, the, you, the point is you have to, you have to not notice that. That's why in the gospel the word for truth is aletheia, which means to stop forgetting, because we always want to forget that mediation. So anyway, Fr Francesca said, well, we were reading this book, and it was the book of La about Lancelot's adulterous relationship with Guinevere, and it was very steamy, and it had all the, of course, she doesn't talk about why it was steamy. It was steamy because it was, it was triangular, it was illicit, it was on the side, it was... Uh, it was uh, charged with all kinds of uh, weightiness, you know. Well, she and, and her brother-in-law were reading this book together. And she says when the two lovers in the book kissed, we looked at one another. <laughs> no mimesis here, of course. We looked at one another, and lo and behold, we fell into each other's arms. And she says, that book... And he who wrote it was a pander, which means a go-between. That's what Eros is, a pander. That book was a pander, and because of it, here we are. The, at the other end of the literary spectrum, you get uh, Flaubert's Madame Bovary. And she reads these cheap romance novels, and then she turns her life into one. <laughs> so, Liber and... A form of liberation, which seems to be a form of liberation, which is also moving in the direction of Dionysus. Now, the Dionysian aspect of this uh, comes later. That's the point I want to make. The fact that it doesn't show up keeps us often from interpreting the whole development. It shows up in the next generation. I mean, I think even... I think even the mythology of this thing shows us that it shows up in the next generation. For example, the story, I think I've talked about this here before, but the story of the, oh, I, we must have when we did that thing on the, the Baki. The story of the birth of Dionysus is that, is that uh, Zeus, who as you know is married to Hera and as a notorious uh, philanderer, Zeus seduces Simile and impregnates her 
And Semele is, is urged by her sisters to get Zeus to reveal himself. And so she says, promise me you'll grant my request. And he, he says, of course. Now, first of all, you have to realize, we've got tri a triangular affair here already. So that's Eros is operating. Eros in this generation is operating. Now, she want, she, he says, yes, I'll give you any request. She said, fine, I want to see you revealed. He reveals himself and she's dead. She's burned to a crisp by this revelation. Now, what is it? He's revealed and his revelation is violence. The death of the one to whom he is revealed. Okay, that's something just to note. See, mythology can be a really, as long as you don't buy it hook, line, and sinker, it can be very helpful. Well, now, what happens is she has, she's, has a child in her womb. The child is then carried in the thigh of Zeus until it's uh, brought to term, and the child is Dionysus. So there are two things we should learn from this story. One is, I would say this, the, Dionysus, the birth of Dionysus has to do with the revelation about Zeus. Zeus without a disguise leads to Dionysus, and I would say Dionysus is Zeus without a disguise. You know the thing, the old thing about if you, if you like sausages, you don't want to watch them being made. If if you like if you like Zeus's grandeur, you don't want to see how it came to pass. You don't want to see what kind of bloody mess gave rise to all that prestige. And if you get that, in other words, you don't want to see Zeus revealed. And Zeus revealed is simile dead, and Dionysus. Dion the Dionysian crisis is what gives rise to Zeus. I would say this. This is why Nietzsche is so right when he says it's a choice between Christ or Dionysus because Dionysus is the birth of all gods. All gods come to be, all of the classical gods come to be in a Dionysian-like crisis which ends with a sacrificial murder. It's So that's ultimately the revelation even of the most august of these figures which is Zeus who is the father God who is in in terms of John's gospel simply one of the fathers of lies the murderer from the beginning so that's one thing to notice the other thing to notice is that in one generation you have the erotic entanglement and in the next generation you have Dionysus and we have and we have this is one thing we have to, it, it's it's a it's a kind of generational version of the thing that I've talked about so often here, which is that the crisis has two stages, the carnivalesque and the sacrificial. And in the carnivalesque, you can't convince anybody that this thing is headed towards the sacrificial denouement because anybody who says that is an old fuddy-duddy and uh, trying to rain on the parade and everything. And, and, and the experience in the carnivalesque is liber. It's liberation. The experience is this is liberation. We're, we're getting free of all of that, not realizing that there's, it, it turns into this other stage, which is sacrificial. So this is important to notice. It begins with Eros and ends with Dionysus. So let me just quote the sentence after the the one that I quoted before where 
Brady speaks about uh, Horace playing on the word liber as free book and Dionysus. He then says, the freedom of movement of the poet, parentheses, libido, therefore directly contrast with the route the politically ambitious must travel to solicit votes, parentheses, ambitio. So that goes back to that same thing. That libido is a, is a more vital and authentic alternative to ambitio. Okay. So just put that on the shelf. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, decanting a couple of things. Put a cork in that, put it on the shelf. Now, let me go to one other thing. All of these things I hope will come back into play here. More or less what I've been trying to do in this series and what I, I try to do in the one we're moving towards is to, having looked at and still looking at as we go, of course, the cultural and anthrop anthropological crisis of the modern world, I'm trying to relate it to and see its implications for our psychological and ontological uh, distress. And Browdy touches on something that brings these things to the fore, I think. He, t he speaks of, of the later Roman emperors, and he distinguishes them, and he particularly speaks of uh, Caligula and Nero, and he speaks of them as emperors whose only imperial claim really was their their genealogy, that they had, they'd done nothing that would have earned them any kind of uh, uh, national repute and so on. They had not, at least, a, you know, Caesar Augustus had, had, was a, was a uh, accomplished politician and statesman and so on and so forth. But these characters were degenerate. And we should, that's another word we should come to here in a little bit. In any event, here's what uh, uh, Browdy says about them. Unlike Augustus, who was manipulating public events for political purposes, the prime goal of Caligula and Nero was to call attention to themselves, simply to call attention to themselves. And here you have the, pro what the problem that faces Caligula and Nero is the problem of hanging on to some kind of sacrality. And sacrality is always mimetic contagion. It's always the fascination of the crowd. And if you've done nothing to fascinate, nothing that would, would merit, say, Virgil's approval, uh, n n none of those great things that the Romans of old would have regarded as worthy, then one, you have to just do it with what you have. You have to do it, it's all done with mirrors, so to speak, you see. Somehow to get the to get the uh, uh, attention. Now, I hate to keep going back to this. It's not fair, really. But I have to tell you about the story of uh, Donovan Leach, who said, who said, "Well, I'm I'm famous here for I'm having my 15 minutes, and if I could just perform some little gesture, just the way I move my hand or some little phrase I drop all the time, that's what that's then that would catch on. You see." And it's, we're, we're talking about that kind of sensibility, that it's perfectly arbitrary. But if it could become the occasion of fascination, contagious fascination, then it will have with it some kind of sacrality. It will endow the person that everybody's fascinated with with a certain kind of sacrality. On the other hand, these 
figures like Caligula and Nero were enormously jealous of all other claims to fame. Browdy says, obsessed with surpassing every precedent, this sounds like uh, Arachne, see? Obsessed with surpassing every precedent, Caligula was violently jealous of the fame of others, replacing heads on the statues of Greek gods with his own, allowing no statue or bust of a living person to be set up without his permission, and seeking to suppress the unduly competitive works of Homer, Virgil, and Livy. So a desperate attempt to stay on top. This is, this is the, the, the hierarchy, the pyramid, the social pyramid sinking into, the, into quicksand and the figure on top trying to somehow stay on top. It reminds me of, it's been a while since I read this, my children are older, but it reminds me of Yertle the Turtle. <laughs> Where else do you hear about, uh, do, you, do you hear about, uh, you know, Horace and Yertle the Turtle in the same session? Anyway, um, so, but the point is, you have the figure on top trying to shore up with with nothing to rely on, to shore up this this sacred pyramid on the top of which he is very precariously perched. Now, how do you do that? Now, I think I've I'm sure I must have mentioned this before. Carl Schmidt was this legal theoretician for the Nazis. A brilliant and perverse figure. But he was, in fact, a legal theoretician. And his question was, where do laws come from anyway? And you go back and you try to find, and it's a little bit like asking the question, where does social order come from? And Carl Schmidt and in, you could say Carl Schmitt and René Girard discovered the same thing. They made radically different moral conclusions from their discovery. But nevertheless, Carl Schmitt says, where does it come from finally? And you go back and you back and back. And where does it finally come from? Well, he says, you can't posit it as coming from some kind of social order because that already presupposes the existence of some social norms. It has to go be... It has to be prior to social norms and the originator of social norms, which is to say it has to be abnormal. And it has to be decisive and electrifying. And what Schmidt came to, his, his formulation for this was what he called decisionism. All law begins with a radical, unprecedented, shocking, abnormal decision, which is always violent, on the part of one terrifying figure that establishes order and establishes really what we would call sacrality. And then it's institutionalized. And as it's institutionalized, this figure begins to be remembered in, in, uh, in more respectable ways and finally becomes Zeus, you see, or something like that. But decisionism is what you do when there's no, there's, there's no order, no premise for order, and you need something radical. And you see, not that it was a 
logical decision in this way, but the, the Nazi final solution was a variation on this theme. It has to be abnormal and amoral. It has to be amoral because if it's moral, it's, it's conforming to existing norms. You see what I'm saying? It has to be something that nobody else would dare do. You see, that kind of thing. What, I'm trying, what I want to do is talk about the psychological version of precisely this same thing with respect to somebody who represents our contemporary ontological disease, what Gerard calls ontological sickness, in a very uh, vivid way, namely Anna East Nin. I want to talk about her in a second. But in order to, s to see the cultural version of this, you have to look back at these figures, or it helps to look back at these figures that Rowdy's talking about, Caligula and Nero. So, <clears throat> he says uh, Caligula, first of all, uh, he's, he's trying to call attention to himself. And this is a thinking man, you know. Augustus Caesar knew that his fame was, was a, an absolute essential key to the existence of Rome. That Rome needed this central, as uh, Frost says in his poem, the central cedar pole. It needed something, a figure that represented it. And here's Caligula trying to become that just by becoming famous with no nothing to claim uh, fame with, nothing of significance. Uh, and being jealous of all other possible claimants. And then Browdy says, just as Caligula made the theatrical gestures of rule the entire point of his ruling, so the arbitrariness of his will constituted the prime test of his power. See, that's decisionism. I'm in charge because I can do anything I want. And when you see how arbitrary that is and how powerful that is, you too will recognize the sacrality of it. This is perverse versions of this are in Stalin, you know, and Mao Zedong and tyrants uh, fall into perverse versions of this. Uh, okay. Now, go behind the scenes just a little bit and you get something that Browdy, I haven't read Suetonius, so it won't surprise you, but Suetonius is a, is a, is a, uh, a Latin historian who wrote The Lives of the Caesars, but Browdy read Suetonius, and I'm reading Browdy, and Browdy uh, says this, Suetonius treats these later emperors as a strange collection of monsters known best for their Baroque sexuality and flamboyant murders. The, the, the richness of these phrases immediately leaps out at one. Baroque sexuality and flamboyant murders. Now, you see, here we have the idea, we come back to the idea, that somehow Eros is an alternative to, you know, make love, not war. Well, Baroque sexuality and flamboyant murder, and again, I would say it corresponds in some perverse way to the carnivalesque uh, phase and the sacrificial phase uh, of a crisis. This is the sacred pyramid collapsing and the people poised precariously at its, at its uh, apex trying frantically to deal with that collapse. Thrown into the crisis and trying to sacralize 
themselves and their position. And Browdy says, in their careers, the noble goal of unique public stature turns into an obsessive effort to see what outsized inhumanities will be enough to ratify their imperial status. That's decisionism. You see what I mean? If I can do something, some radical thing that is so outrageous, so stunning, so god-awful that it will have it will have cathartic effect and create a sacred aura around me and my uh, my dynasty. You see that kind of thing. When we look back at this now the word that leaps to our lips immediately is the word degenerate but the reason it's degenerate and we recognize it's it's degenerate nature is because it didn't achieve generativity you see what i'm saying this is what the create the creation of the old sacred system always requires uh, this gamble that one does something that's outrageous and bloody and sacrificial and arbitrary and all of the rest of it. And if it works, it's sacralized. And if it doesn't, it's, it's looked on, as one sees its degenerate nature. You see what I mean? It's like the sausage factory. <laughs> if it works, it comes out and it looks marvelous. And if it doesn't, it looks like a mess. And so we look back on these failed figures and we say, this is degenerate. This is degenerate. As Heraclitus pointed out, there's a logic to this whole thing. There is a logic that eludes us. So we don't see it. And that's why, for example, I was saying, the, in, the fir in one generation you have the Eros, in the next generation you have the Di Dionysus. So that those of us whose formative years were in the 60s and we thought well we 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 it was let your hair down lie bare and now we look at the rock music lyrics and we say holy smoly these people are talking about sadomasochism and suicide and nihilism and destruction for its own sake recreational violence What's going on? We don't see that. And, for example, you have in movies, I mean, you could follow this just with movies probably if you paid careful attention, but suddenly we have these movies in our time which are movies about gratuitous violence. See, it's not the old-fashioned movies, grade B movies, good guy, bad guy, sort of blowing away movies. But you get movies now like uh, Natural Born Killers. I haven't seen these. I read about them. It's like a lot of things. I'm too squeamish. But Natural Born Killers and uh, Pulp Fiction. And maybe the most, the most revealing one is this thing called uh, Interview with the Vampire, in which, as far as I can tell from my reading of the reviews, it, there's no real distinction between sex and violence on one hand, and between male and female on the other. So you get symptom of the crisis. Horror films, by the way, I think, are a religious genre. It is just, there's, what makes a horror film horrible 
is that the person performing the violence seems to be doing it under the impulse of some prompting. That's what makes a horror film horrible. Some There's a kind of metaphysical quality to it. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. The, anyway, I'm, all I'm saying is that, that the idea that, first of all, you have Baroque sexuality and flamboyant murders, and then the attempt to perform some kind of uh, what Brady calls outsized inhumanity in order to, to ratify one's status. Okay, what I want to do next is take a look at the, the life as we now know it of Ana Isnin. Not because I want to make a scapegoat out of Ana Isnin, but because Ana Isnin suffered from the ontological, what, what Girard calls the ontological sickness. Uh, just about as profoundly as as anybody in our time. So if we turn to her and look at her life and see its tragedy, it's not because we want to uh, exult in how morally superior we are, but because we want to analyze the disease that all of us have to some extent. Lest you think that I'm... That it's an arbitrary thing to talk about Ana Isnin or a mean-spirited thing. She was, as you probably know, a very important figure in the 60s and early 70s. I think back on those times. There, was, there were two books that were ubiquitous in those days. One was Black Elk Speaks. And the other was the diaries of Anis Nin. And all my friends carried around dog-eared copies of, of each. And it then turns out, of course, that, that Black Elk had been a Roman Catholic catechist all his life. And the people in his village thought of him as, a, as, uh, as the Catholic man who went around teaching children the catechism, that was how he was seen by his contemporaries. Not one word of that in Neihardt's book. And Neihardt's a marvelous guy, but there you have a kind of, a kind of black hole in the story. And the reverse of that with Anais Nin. Anais Nin was thought of as the heroine of the feminist movement, as the, 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 uh, the inspiring muse of the feminist movement. And now biographies are coming out. That There was one that came out three or four years ago and one that came out uh, about a year ago, which uh, completely undermined that. And what I'm going to quote to you is a review of the latest biography. And again, not for the purpose of making a smug moral comparison between ourselves and Ani Nin, because who knows, it might not be such, it might not flatter us if we did. But in any event, the, the point is not to, to, uh, to scapegoat her, but I truly believe that she represents a form of the, of the prevailing ontological distress that it would help us a great deal to understand better, and her her uh, her case of it makes it a little more understandable. So I'm going to quote to you from a 
review of a biography by Didra Bear. And here's what Miss Bear says about Anna Isnin in her biography. She says, quote, The 20th century will be remembered for many concepts that brought sweeping societal change. And Anna Isnin was among the pioneers who explored three of the most important of these, sex, the self, and psychoanalysis. Now that's a pretty interesting trinity, I would say. Sex, the self, and psychoanalysis. There you have the, the locale, the locus classicus of the modern confusion. Precisely there. You know, in philosophy these days, there's nothing to talk about except the question of subjectivity, the existence of this. Is there really a subject? And what does the subject consist of? In other words, the only thing to talk about is whether there's a self. And so here we have sex, the self, and psychoanalysis. Well, okay, there you have it. Then uh, Miss Baer goes on. When future generations seek to understand how these evolved in our time, Anna East Nin will be the major minor writer whose works they must consult. Well, that's her way of saying, if you want to understand the modern world, here's a life that will help you understand it. And I think there's truth in that. Uh, I would maybe phrase it differently. As a matter of fact, the reviewer, whose review I'm going to quote to you, puts it slightly differently. Uh, his, his name is Bruce Bauer, and he says at the end of his review, if Nin is remembered at all, it will not be as a pioneer, but as a colorful peripheral character who embodied in an extreme form some of the more unfortunate distinguishing characteristics of our age, namely an obsession with fame, which is our subject, a zeal for self-advertisement, a tendency to confuse art and self-expression, a rejection of intellect in favor of feeling, a romantic glorification of neurosis, selfishness, and irresponsibility, end quote. Ms. Bear's assessment is you, we, we should go to Anais if we want to understand our world. Bauer demurs a little bit, but he still says she, she, she embodied a, the characteristic features of, of our age and... and and uh, so we still need to look at her. So in a, so in a certain sense, uh, Bauer and Bear agree that she is a seminal figure or a, or a symbolic figure for our age. So that's why I think it's worth taking a look at her, her, her life. In the first paragraph of his review, Bauer says the following. This just gives the background, but I think it's highly relevant. He says, quote, her mother was a wealthy Cuban of Danish and French extraction who pampered her throughout her childhood in France, Belgium, Spain, and Queens, and into adulthood. Her father was a Spanish pianist whose abandonment of the family impelled her to write him a letter. That letter took the form of a diary begun in 1914 when she was 11 that would eventually run to a quarter of a million pages and remain the center of Anna East Nin's existence until her death in 1977. Now, just let's just look at this for a second. As I've said many times in the past, 
fatherlessness in one form or another is a glaring symptom of our time. Now, sometimes the fatherlessness is physical and sometimes it's metaphysical. But it's a glaring symptom. It can be understood. I think the Gospels understand it. The old father and everything he represents, we talked about this before, is deconstructed by the biblical revelation. It's a complicated question. Nevertheless, the same biblical revelation that deconstructs the old father provides us with another one the heavenly Father that Jesus revealed. I don't want to get into theology here. We've got enough things. Nevertheless, fatherlessness is a, is a key ingredient. So there's fatherlessness. And there's an attempt to communicate with the Father, which becomes lifelong. He says, this. it began as a letter to her father and became a diary going to a quarter of a million pages. Now, I want you just to feel the emotion of that. It began as a letter to her father, and it turned in to a quarter of a million page diary. You see, when you, when you read things like that, you begin to f have a little compassion for Anna Eastman. You see what I'm saying? Her life was screwed up. It's obvious. And a, a morally suspect in many ways. Nevertheless, one has to go back to this, I think, and feel the pathos of an 11-year-old girl's letter that turns into a quarter of a million pages of a diary. That, according to uh, the biographer, was the center of her existence her whole life. What was the center of her existence? a letter to her father who had abandoned her. We're talking about the loss of ontological moorings, right? You see what I'm saying? When Christianity, when Jesus says, you must come to know the Father through me, he's talking about ontological moorings. An ontological mooring that will replace the lost moorings of this world whatever they might, they might be. In any event, there's so many things there we could talk about, but I, I, I say just in the opening thing, you have something very profound and, and symbolic of our age. And then Bauer points out that original sources now indicate that the published diary, which Bauer always puts in quotation marks, the published diary is in many ways fictional. I'm quoting from his review and that the supposedly unexpurgated diary volumes were heavily edited, and that Nin's self-portrait in her diary represented a serious distortion. He goes on to say, Nin was, for example, even more self-absorbed than the diary might suggest. And the self-absorption of the diary is pretty obvious. Although, then we have to say, we have to begin to clarify things. Once, the, Once we understand some of the mimetic dynamics, some of these terms that we habitually use to describe situations have to be nuanced. For example, we describe somebody as being selfish or being, uh, being narcissistic, you see, or something like that. Self-absorption is an example of that. If you look, it looks like self-absorption, 
But if you look, you realize it's not it's self-absorption. Well, but if you look, you realize that it's a tremendous preoccupation with what others think. You see, just as the narcissist. Can you imagine being a narcissist in a room without a mirror? You can't do it. If you're alone in a room without a mirror, could you be a narcissist? No. It's not. Doesn't have it. It requires observers. If you say, now the mirror, when one is a narcissist before a mirror, that's just a way of getting a look at what the audience is going to see when you go out the door. So narcissism is preoccupied with the other, and this self-absorption of anisnin is a preoccupation with the other. So we should. Those. I mean, I'm just making a little discernment as we go along. Okay. So the the uh, the biography points out that uh, that uh, Nin was obsessed with the determination, as she put it, to live life as a dream made real. And she did this not only as a result of her mother's indulgence of her every whim, but also bec uh, as a result of the indulgence of her husband, whose name was Hugo Goulier, whom she married in 1923, an American banker. And And... Hugo adored her, thought of her as this artistic genius, and they spent their evenings, most evenings together, with Hugo listening to Anais Nin read aloud her diary entries to her husband. Now, think about this. They spent most of their evenings with him adoringly. Now, you have to... There's something here. There's something good here. I mean, there's a kind of a generosity here or something and but I'm just but you see what's happening is you have this this incredible void there this need to fill that to become real by recording it and and then in parentheses you realize it's a great big long letter to her father who abandoned her and she's sitting there reading it to her husband every night you see I mean there's a kind of pathos here that's really it's really but but I, I find it I find myself empathizing with just about everybody involved, up to a point. Now, here's what here's what uh, here's here's what the the uh, well the uh, Bauer says uh, Hugo, her husband, quote, tolerated his wife's obsession with her diary. Obsession with her diary. What is her diary? The story of her life. What is the story of her life? A great long letter to her father who abandoned, etc. You see, okay, then he says, the reviewer says, Nin, who found Goulier sexually unsatisfactory, did not return his loyalty. After their 1924 removal from New York to Paris, she began a lifelong series of sexual derelictions, flirting shamelessly at Hugo's business parties. By the way, the biography explains that he, she would go around making passes at all the men at these business parties, and then he would come home and apologize to her for having subjected her artistic soul to this Philistine environment. And in any event, so it says she was flirting shamelessly at Hugo's business parties. Now, one has to... Now, I... You... you you, you won't mistake me for a Freudian, will you? I'm not a Freudian. But on the other hand, remember we have the absent father at the root of... Uh, not at the root. I mean, th at the root of this is the whole ontological crisis. But, but you see, 
to, to interpret it simply as a kind of nymphomania is, would be a grave mistake. You see, something much more profound than that. Okay, so here it is. Flirting shamelessly at Hugo's business parties, coupling with her father in a later rendezvous with him, sleeping, or so she claimed, with her brother, one of her brothers, putting moves on her other brother's spiritual counselor, and seducing most of her psychoanalysts, plural, including an infatuated Otto Rank, one of the most famous psychoanalysts. What is this? This is, this is the, the ontological hunger being expressed in a sexual way. So Bauer says, did Nin feel guilty about any of this? If so, she had a ready excuse. She was an artist. <laughs> and artists didn't follow rules. Hugo agreed, writing in his own journal. Now, this is the ontological equivalent of decisionism. You see, remember when I was talking about Caligula and Nero performing something? And because they did it and it was outrageous, but it was, it was the emperor who did it, then it was valid. This is the ontological version of that. So Hugo, writing in his own journal that Anais was, quote, not merely an artist, she is the definition of art. Therefore, she cannot make mistakes. Whatever she does with that instinct burning in her, and it burns unceasingly, an immortal flame, is right, becomes right, for it is she who does it, end quote. Now that is somebody who has been breathing the fumes off of Nietzsche's cauldron right there. Okay, so cut to 1931. Nin meets Henry Miller, whom she adopted as a disciple and lover. Here's what Bauer says in his review. Impregnated by either Miller or Hugo, it's not clear which, she took medication to induce an abortion, had a stillborn girl, made diary entries that reveal a chilling inhumanity. Quoting from one of the diaries, here she said when Miller visited her in the hospital and announced his forthcoming book, visited her in the hospital after she induced this abortion and gave birth to a stillborn girl. Here, and he told her that he had a book coming out, here is a birth which is of greater interest to me, she told him. Liber, Liberty, Book, Dionysus, comes back again. Agave, with the head of Pentheus, her son, in her hand. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's something very... The, all these things come to... They converge. You see, this is my problem. My problem is that these things converge. They don't line up in a line. And I have to come here every week and do things sequentially. And it drives me crazy <laughs> because things don't work that way. And so they converge. And so you come back at these things again. They co they're coming at you all the while. Okay. So back to New York now. In, this is 
from Bauer. In New York, where Hugo presently joined her, Nin churned out pornography, some of which became her posthumous bestseller, Delta of Venus, and mixed with young gay men, who Miss Bear reports later said she had, quote, tried to seduce them in exchange for a few bucks, end quote. And from 1945 to 1947, she dallied with adolescence, urging one 18-year-old, quote, to leave Yale and break with his parents so that he too could live in the dream, end quote. Okay, we have to see this. It's just the desperation, the desperation. Uh, and then she wrote a series of mainly autobiographical novels of uh, marginal literary uh, merit. Quote, through a 1944 New Yorker review by Edmund Wilson, parentheses, who soon became another Nin bedmate, uh, she won serious literary attention for the first time. Still quoting, Nin took infidelity at that point to new imaginative heights. From 1948 onward, she played an astonishing game, spending part of each year in New York with Hugo and part in Los Angeles with a young man named Rupert Pohl, whom she illegally wed in 1955, telling each man he was her only spouse. Now, we could say, well, she fell in love with these two men. And how extraordinary she just fell in love with. But why didn't she fall in love with just one? Why didn't she fall in love with ten? She fell in love with these two men. They were on opposite. You see, there's something in the structure of this which has, and I don't, I'm, don't, I'm not competent to analyze it psychologically, but... Uh, I would say there's something to be understood here in terms of the structure of that. What's unbelievable, really, is that this arrangement lasted until she died of cancer in 1977, at which time the New York Times printed an obituary naming Hugo her husband, and the Los Angeles Times printed an obituary naming this other man as her husband. Unbelievable, one of the most famous women in America. Well, I don't know, it's pretty amazing. But meanwhile, she had become the, the prevailing spirit of the, of the feminist movement. You don't think so? No, no, I'm just yeah. Well, I mean, but the th at the time she was, that's the point. That's the, yeah, at the time she was. Okay, so... And then Bauer, I think he's touched by the same thing that I find after a while. I mean, you begin to see the f and feel the pathos of this. And, uh, and the reviewer, New York Times reviewer, uh, Bauer, I think, feels it. He says, quote, It's hard to be too tough on Nin, whose supposed dream life, quote-unquote, was, in fact, one of fear, guilt, loneliness, insecurity, and fragmentation. There you have the real ontological situation. In the end, one feels for this aging flirt who was so stressed out by her double dealing that she took sleeping pills nightly, 
who, brought, who bought multiple copies of every magazine containing an article about her and whose typical reaction to people, quote, happy and fully integrated into their lives was, as Miss Baer writes, quote, to devalue them. So the, the review ends with the observations with which I began from uh, Miss Baer and Mr. Bauer, but uh, there's one more comment that uh, Bauer makes. He's a literary critic, so he makes a couple of literary observations. He speaks of the diary in his review, and he says its intellectual vacuity eventually makes the diary feel arid. She rarely seems capable, moreover, of imagining other people's feelings, comprehending what makes them tick, or, for that matter, seeing very far beyond how they feel about her. The self-absorption that made the diary possible ultimately crippled her as an artist." End quote. Now, remember Nero and Caligula trying to shore up something that's sinking into the quicksand. This is what we have, this is the parallel here. The, the attempt, a quarter of a million pages of diary. You see what I'm saying? This, this sexual hysteria, self-absorption, a quest for fame, etc., etc., to shore up something that's, that's, that's eroding faster than it could be shored up. You see, that's the, that is the thing. Well, as I said earlier, Augustine is someone who recognized that we are restless until we rest in Thee. It's the supreme response, I think, to the ontological crisis. Augustine knew whereof he spoke. He lived a life in some respects as a young man that has certain parallels with an Anais Nins. And he saw where it was going. And he experienced a conversion. And I want to just touch on a couple of things that Augustine said. The point really is what Augustine says about glory, true glory. And we'll end with that. But before we do, let me just quote some things that Browdy says. Later on, Browdy speaks of Augustine as well. And here's what Browdy says about Augustine. With his rhetorician's love of wordplay, Augustine, like Ovid, implicitly associates the hunger for food, famis, with the hunger for worldly fame, fama. And he contrasts both with the absolute nourishment given by God. The famine of fame hungers for what is insubstantial. The progress of the soul towards God is a gradual process of understanding what it is one truly yearns for. Real appreciation, truly satisfying, occurs only when the audience is God. And there you have the other ontology. Now, another thing Braddy says about Augustine resonates with what we just read about Anis Nin. He says, quote, the proper use of language enables the Christian writer to emerge from self-obsession 
into obsession with God, instead of being an assertion of one's uniqueness, writing properly understood allows the writer to displace the urge for his own fame, instilled by pagan tradition, into the urge to glorify God. Who says that? Browdy is summarizing Augustine's point. In passing, we should notice one other thing which Brady brings to the fore. He says, because of his emphasis on the inner as opposed to the outer structure of personal identity developed in the Confessions and, his, and in his book on the Trinity, Augustine has been credited with being the first writer to elaborate the philosophical concept of a person. Now, that's, that's a weighty insight. What does it mean to be a person? It means to be related. And the question is, what are... First, I, I want to make one quibble. It's not inner-outer. It is inner-outer in the sense that what Augustine is talking about, when Augustine says inner, what he means is not public. He doesn't mean autonomous. The inner is the life of prayer. It's, a, it's the life of the most robust kind of relationship. It's not a life of autonomy. That's important to notice because you can turn that inner business into some kind of mythic thing. So it's simply not public. So ultimately, there are two forms of ontology. The eyes of others and the eyes of God. Now, that is at least the, the uh, implicit, almost explicit content of what Browdy says about Augustine. Quote, only through the love of God can man strip himself of the need for public praise and glory. Without God, he thinks only of himself, wondering what others will think of him. Now, that, that's an interesting sentence. Thinks only of himself. Don't put a period there. Put a comma there. Wondering what others will think of him. That's what self-absorption is. It's not really thinking of only one. It's thinking of what others are going to think, you see. So there are only two forms of ontology. Now, this, this is saying it in its most radical and, and simple and elementary way. Nuances, no doubt, abound. But one should say there are only two forms of ontology. The observation of others, which many people, Augustine included, call fame, and the eyes of God, to, as the Bible says, to walk in the eyes of the Lord, which is to say prayer. So in its simplest form, there are two forms of ontology. And fame is not, is not the right word because we think of, we reserve the word fame for people who are, quote, famous. And in our ordinary world, we're not famous. But the esteem of others, let's put it that way, two forms of ontology, the esteem of others and prayer. Jesus says, human glory means nothing to me. I know you too well, however. You have no love of God in you. I have come in the name of my Father, and you have refused to accept me. If someone else should come in his own name, you would accept him. How can you believe since you look to each other for glory?
and are not concerned with the glory that comes from the one God. I think that's absolutely central to all of this thing we're talking about. In any event, just to end with Augustine. Augustine said in his confessions, and again it's a prayer, long prayer, he said, I turned from unity in you to be lost in multiplicity. Now, what, what does that mean in the modern world, to turn from unity to be lost in multiplicity? Well, here's what it meant for Anna East Nin, according to Bauer. It's hard to be too tough on Nin, whose supposed dream life was in fact one of fear, guilt, loneliness, insecurity, and fragmentation. Fragmentation, now, is exactly what Augustine is talking about. He says, I turn from unity in you to be lost in multiplicity. However, he says, you gathered me together from the state of disintegration in which I had been fruitlessly divided. And he gives us that marvelous summation of it. We are restless until we rest in thee. This concludes Famished Craving. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.